on episode 14 of the Game Developers Podcast Out of Play Area, we welcome Nicolas Montaillet-Le Boisserie, who has been in this wonderful industry since 2004, starting in QA at Ubisoft Montreal, where he's worked on Assassin's Creed and Naruto and Prince of Persia, to where he is now at WB Games Montreal as an advanced game designer, where he worked on Arkham Origins. He and I worked closely together during my tenure at WB Games Montreal on Gotham Knights. He's one of my most beloved combat designers. And in this episode, we break down all the trends of various melee-based combat systems over the years to where we've come now today with free flow combat as seen in the Arkham series, the Shadow of Mordor and War Games, even Insomniac's Spider-Man to the tight, more focused, intimate combat found in from software games like Sekiro, Bloodborne, and the Souls game, as well as Respawn's Jedi Fallen Order. Nick shares his insights on that, as well as his time extending the Arkham combat in Arkham Origins, even on to going into what it goes to make the transition from QA into game design. Coming to us all the way from our wonderful neighbors to the north, from Laval in Quebec, please welcome Nicolas Montaillet Le Boisserie. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I miss it, man. I miss hanging out late at night, going out into the wherever, 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 you know, arcades, we bars, board game pubs. Yeah, board game pubs were fun. Shout out to Randolph's. I love that place, man. That was fun. Are they surviving? Like, are there any closures that you've seen on Saint Denis or anything like this? Apparently, it's not super great. All the bars. I think Randolph is surviving because they have a shop that they sell board games. Ah, okay. But they board can games do that online. is not the best kind of medium right now either. It's super social. I think they're still surviving. I know mm-hmm. there was some like pinball. There was one with a lot of pinball machines that was super big in Montreal. These one have a issue. I think they're renting pinball machines to stay alive. Yeah, exactly. I think Addy is uh, helping them. He rented like some tables once or twice mm-hmm. like for the month. So that helps like make sure that they can do maintenance and pay for the, the cost. But yeah, no, it's not going super well in that regard. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Yeah, dude, shout out to Ade. I think he's the guy that put me on to Kraken and Coke, and that's what I'm sipping on here. A little Kraken, a little Coke. Oh, yeah. Kraken and Coke, but that's rum and Coke, baby. That's what I drink usually, rum and Coke. In your honor, sir. In your honor. Thank you. Brown rum. Coke. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, thanks for taking time to come on. I've been looking forward to this since we were talking about it, right? Because I haven't really done like a real deep dive on any one particular aspect of game design. With Mei Ling a little bit, we we delve into social design and I was pretty awesome. I really enjoyed that episode. But this will be the first one where we get deep, nitty gritty into anticipation and keyframes. Cheers. Cheers. Salute Salute Santé. What are you drinking? Pepsi and rum. Same thing. Meets Captain Morgan. Oh, yeah. There you go. Spice Captain rum. Captain Morgan, spice rum. There you go, The man. pirates are. Where are you at right now? I've never got a chance to go to your crib, unfortunately. But where I got to I gotta be mindful to tag the location where you live, where you're <laughs> talking to me from. I'm living in Laval, Quebec, ah, in Canada. 
that's uh, suburbs, the city suburbs, right next to uh, North Shore of Montreal. Awesome, so awesome. So we can we can put the map in place yeah. right now that we're all working remote across the world, right? Second like- biggest city of Quebec, just so you know, after oh, Montreal. Shit. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't mean much, but still. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Awesome, awesome. So we talked about diving deep into combat design. Yes. And before we get into that, for the people out there listening that don't exactly know, aren't very familiar with what a combat designer does, I'd love for you, Nick, to break down what's a day in the life of a combat designer typically like. Where do you usually spend most of your day? How's the work structured? Good question, uh, my old friend. It really depends on which uh, cycle of the game development we're at. That's what I would tell you. So basically, uh, if you're part of the core team and you're doing all that conception phase, I would, I would speak just mostly for ex- from experience, but this may differ from people, from person to person. But mm-hmm. For me, into conception was really trying to train. It's about prototyping. What would be the best features, combat-wise, that you would be able to take for your game? What type of game are you making? Is it about evasion? Is it about card control? Is it about the mastery of one-on-one mechanics, for example? And then it's straight, trying to throw everything on the wall and see what sticks and what systems mm. work are working well together and define that core pillar premise of your combat system. Okay. Basically. So for me, I think that's where we're going at to conception. Uh, once we reach pre-production, which is more often than not the phase that's right after, usually it's, uh, we take all the results of these prototypes, all the feedback, and then we are analyzing and forcing what is the amount of work we need to do to make this to a real feature, real systems. So th- things might have been done quickly just to test out some principles, some concepts with your defensive mechanics, offensive mechanics. But now you have to make it a real foundation for all the systems to start pulling it from it and be real in the engine itself. And that is a lot of work with usually programming mm-hmm. uh, for all the other systems. How do you deal damage? How do you deal with animation interruption, for example, AI? Oh, yeah. Because oh, you yeah. always have to have an, uh, somebody to beat up when you have punching bags. a fight. Yeah, exactly. So punching bags themselves are good for training. You find them to react. You need to work on these guys as well. So what is AI going to do? How is AI going to challenge you in that regard also? Building up all these archetypes. What do we imagine the challenge of them to be to the player? Like mm-hmm. what are these archetypes or enemies trying to challenge the player on? based on your previously defined gameplay players of the combat system. And a lot of work with person with animation. Because animation is kind of where it all underlies. Like sound is super important for the visual feeling and feedbacks. Same thing for VFX. Animation is really what you see and what you're going to visually react to. And it's going to be what drives your timings and yep. what drives also repetitiveness and your entire enjoyment, like your second-to-second enjoyment of like the fight feeling that you're going to have. So they're having the right timing metrics for the attacks and starting to have an idea of where you want them to land and conform across the board is a good place to do it in pre-production. That's a really fantastic, in-depth, thorough breakdown. And what's interesting as you're talking about it, what I'm thinking is, unlike a lot of other systems design positions where you can really prototype very basically right on paper you can get pretty far with rough geometry you can usually block out a level and get like three c's going and things like this so many of those systems you can get pretty far but when you're talking about combat design and ai design that real low level gameplay yeah it's interesting because you need animation early early on you know not shippable but definitely not like 
prototyping, right? It needs to be somewhere in the middle. That's interesting. Exactly. Because you can get pretty far with the paperwork design of the fight system in conception, like what you want your things to be, what are your tools for a player, like what type of attacks do you have, what type of defensive maneuvers do you have. But to make it real, to, try, to really make it in the road, you need to be tested in a real game situation. Because you might have the best matrix of defensive, this move is good against this, which is bad against this, but when you play it, actually, with all the amount of different enemies with you, depending on the game you're making, it can become such a different feeling than what you envision, that getting mm. down to the low level is definitely helps a lot. Because a lot of the things goes into the perception also of the animation and the fluidity of your moves. Totally. And sometimes perception could be a very big factor that biases some people's enjoyment of the system. Just because mm -hmm. this move is a bit too long or this move is not what they intended, it doesn't feel like it hits hard enough, that could easily easily change some people's perception on the fight itself, where it basically doesn't, because mechanically speaking, it all behaves the same, basically. But because mm -hmm. it's now punched with the right end and the left end, we don't see the attack with that camera angle anymore, so it's getting confusing and stuff like that. Oh gosh, camera. That was just an example, but you can start getting into how do we fix these problems that are going to be your moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, a fighting system is really about to be enjoyed into the second-to-second -second gameplay. Oh yeah. Not as a, it could be done as a tactical thing, also if you go more into the, the wargaming kind of kind of style, but as, as part of I'm reactive to uh, my defensive, my attacks, the enemy's behavior, that's moment-to-moment. And that mm -hmm. needs to be good all the time because you're basically saying that this will be what people would be enjoying the most all the time. And that's why you bank the most bucks on it. And nailing that early, super important. I think it's important to nail down the foundational stuff first. You will always have some add-ons or some removals along the line that can come later on in production. Mm -hmm. But having a strong basis to uh, lean on and start, getting that rhythm down, that kind of uh, back and forth working yeah. is super important early on to have defined Hell yeah, brother. What I dig about the role in particular is the aspect of being on the floor with your gameplay programmers and with your animators, right? Like you're a three-headed hydra always <laughs> going at this thing. Yes. Unlike a lot of other roles, a lot of other roles you can probably get away with just being more in design land, being more with your level designers, being more with narrative people, things like this. Exactly. Yeah, you are more involved with all the departments from the game. Yeah. That's for sure. Especially, I would say, like the classic 3D programming, animation, and VFX, for example, mm -hmm. and art. Oh, yeah. Also for just any type of weapons you might add, all that stuff. But technically, the, the old Trinity, I would say for me, has been animation, programming, and VFX, for sure. Sound, super important. We always count oh, them yeah. last. Also. The crunchy, but the impact. Crunchiness, it adds so much on it that, yeah, it's important to uh, have all these players participate into elaborating what will make a light attack feel like it's light. And a V attack feel like it's heavy. It's about animation. It's about VFX, the impact of the hit. It's about the sound of the crunchiness of where do I hit? How hard does it feel it's, it's hitting? It's all that will give you that, that visual feeling that we're looking for and that will make that moment-to-moment -moment enjoyable. And people need to really take part to that quite early to define the basis and the logic of the system. We always make the joke, we always leave audio for last, but in these type of systems, they are front and center because I always make the joke of, hey, try playing a game on mute and see if it feels the same. And people are always interested in saying, hey, what does audio have to do with feeling? But you realize it quickly when it's not there. Night and day. It's night mm -hmm. and day. So that's a day in your life. It sounds quite busy, quite hectic, but also extremely satisfying, it sounds like. It is quite hectic, quite busy. But when you start seeing some mechanics or features or even just, I would say, moments, like mm -hmm. moments into the fight choreography, we call it like fight situation, that feel good, that makes you 
feel a part of the fantasy train to reach yet. There's no bigger rush of adrenaline or endorphin or whatever the chemicals in your brain to make you feel happy about it. It's an amazing feeling of accomplishment and of teamwork also because it's never achievable by one person. Mm-hmm. So when you start doing something that's cool and people look at it it's like, yeah, it feels good. Yeah, I mean, it's true for any system. Let's be honest. Sure. But I don't know, maybe it's just me, but the fact that it's super tactile, the fact it's, it's really, like I said, it's, it's a second-to-second second rewarding with the punch and the crunches, the crunchiness of it, it hooks me, like, deeply. Oh, and, make, and when we see how the dots align, the gears working together to make these things happen, it just feels like mm. a, the plan fits together, and it's so rewarding. Yeah, it's interesting how that can be a nugget of the game very, very early on. Very early on, before yep. the world's in place, before the narrative's in place, before a lot of boss fights, before a lot of investment. Yeah, because it's pretty agnostic from all these other ones that are that needs to lean on other departments. Like, it's technically a good fighting system. Take God of War. You could remove, technically, uh, Kratos and his son and just put another dude or woman with an axe with the same gameplay system. I mean, it's still going to be enjoyable. The system itself will be enjoyable. You'll need to have that story around. All these things will make it to the next level, basically, yep. but it's pretty agnostic, like you say. So, yeah, it's easy to just get into your bubble with the Holy Trinity, like I said, with animation, VFX, sound, and programming, and just make something fun on your own as others' departments start growing and brewing, and then trying to make sure that we connect the dots in a meaningful way. Because if you just bring the system on its own and not caring about anything else, you will have other maybe problems at some points you need to be able to breach other but it's easy to just make it like incubate alone until you have mm-hmm. something good and then just get the the baby out and just yeah how do we integrate and put that into line with everything else easily mm-hmm. usually it's not super hard to do. yeah i was looking forward to this because we were having fun about the idea of breaking down the history of combat design particularly in 3d because you yeah, know, if, we, 3D, if, we, yeah. if we throw in 2D, you know, we can get oh, lost we, talking we about the yeah. ups. So if I just put the hard cut to say, okay, 3D Boom. fighters, and we're gonna stick with PVE, right? We're gonna, we're gonna stay away from fighting games. We're gonna talk okay. about PVE. PVE. Where did we start? Where did it start? So first 3D games, I mean like mass market, triple like a, we're talking about, I guess Saturn, PlayStation. Yeah, era? you can say Saturn, PS1. N64. N64. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're there. Okay, where did it start getting interesting? Interesting. I think I think where it first started was I mean the 3D world just brought a lot of different aspects that were never before being able to be touched with the normal 2D plane. So I think there was a lot of exploration done. So a lot of mistakes because it was a new world like for the new developers back then. And I see mistakes. That's taking into account now at that time it were their mistakes they were just doing like what felt was the best at the time i remember the biggest thing when we first got into 3d was the camera the camera was always getting yeah. in the way right yeah. like it took a while to get yeah, that i think camera is probably one that suffered the most from this particular 3d because the camera in a 2d flat plane easy to manage enough yep. when you start having third three-dimensional having to handle the camera the walls like we all get stuck we all got stuck between the walls uh, a wall, your camera between you, yourself, a wall, the enemy, and you don't see where you are. And that started happening. And you're getting punched there. in the back. <laughs> At this moment, exactly. Wow. So for sure, this was a new thing that people need to care about. I think the first the first games in 3D were, I know I remember like Fighting Force, stuff of these Fighting Force, like, yeah, man. You just go at it, fighting force. beat them up, get up the crowbars and beat them in a 3D land. What else happened back then? We talked about... Ocarina of Time was interesting. Okay, right now, but why can't we? Thank you, John. Uh, Zelda, Zelda, yeah. and Zelda 64. 
that's yeah. a huge step into what the fight. And I think maybe some even ground rules for a new system that are like kind of the uh, things at the moment, basically. But yeah, Kakarina of Time was something amazing. You could oh, yeah. you could play uh, we could play freely third person uh, wise. You had the, all the old luck system that would change your your moves. So the luck system would give you new new evades, new type of moves, new uh, easy way to handle the camera itself. I think it was a very good point on making that camera make sure that it looks where you want and then yeah. look at your attacks but you don't get lost also. It was extremely vital and you didn't realize it. And that, that was the beauty of it, right? Like yep. once you got the lock on and it was perfectly mapped to like your, your left hand trigger exactly, finger. Yeah. So you can instantly get the camera out of the way and focus on the thing you were concerned with. Mm -hmm. And then that opened up all this new level of badass ninja movement, right? Where you can backflip, Side exactly. Step, step, block, job, 360 attacks. I mean, all that stuff. Which are like key aspects of any combat system these days, right? Yep. Crowd, yeah, everything about the, having multiple its moves, to crowd control, to uh, have decent targeting without having a lock system. I think most games right now maybe went, it depends which, which type. I guess mm -hmm. we'll talk about it later, but I know some very famous system who are. Just maybe holding you with uh, which enemy do you lock, and it still feels good, but it's nowhere close to that kind of uh, level of handling your your target like Zelda ever made it. And it was in typical Nintendo fashion, they rewarded you for doing the thing, right? When you locked on, brought up your shield at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So you would always have the defense stance, exactly. When you were locked on, your evade was faster. You would normally roll slower than if you were when you were locked on. You had even a backflip, which were quicker to be able to react faster in combat. Yep. Which also make you do speed run. You play backflip with that <laughs> that mode because <laughs> it is faster than, and you can do it without enemies around. Yeah, I always see that in speedruns. Like you always hear like, hep, 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 hep. I'm like, what yep. the fuck are they doing, man? <laughs> so uh, there's that. I know there's. I was also. I, let, I think a lot of try. Like I said, camera was a big thing and handling with targeting because of the 3D space. Like which which targeting which again you have. I think where a lot of the tryouts and errors of that era. I remember like a game called uh, Mark of Cream, but it was pretty brutal. You're playing like a barbarian. I know they had one of the first interesting concept in that regard. I found that right now would feel totally. I mean, stupid quote quote because we see it in every game. But back in the day, nobody really did something like that. That you could get your enemies, you would flick your right stick to kind of tag them, and yeah. every you got tagged, assign one button of your controller. So you had either like the tag was a PlayStation, so you had like the square, triangle, circle, or X mapped to the enemies. Mm -hmm. And basically, if you're the a guy to your right was mapped with square, all your square attacks would hit that guy. And, all the, and, oh. and if that enemy was uh, was tagged as triangle, triangle only hit that guy instead. So you you never had to play with targeting because your inputs were already always going to these targets. Oh, so that was a super interesting way. I think nobody came did that because I think we just maybe got better of detecting the stick direction at the time with your targeting. But nobody really game really tried to go with having different crowd control mid targeting like that and mid yeah. characters. In that fashion. And I think that was a very interesting try back in the day also. So I think there was a lot of discovering this new world, the new 3D world, basically, mm. and what were like the crevices and the, the beautiful fruits that emerged from it. Yeah, I like that. I got to put that in the notes. I got to check that one out, see if I could find it. Mark of Cree. Because that yeah. sounds fun. I, I, I love anything that kind of takes a whole element of worry where I could just press buttons. Right? It was a great and, game and surprisingly brutal for the age at the time. Like you mm. had the... You had some interesting moves in there for sure. It was an interesting okay. system. A lot of stealth also, which was fun. Oh, you know, you know, stealth yep. is how you get me, Nick. 
And then it seems like we moved into a fixed camera period there when you talk about some of the heavy hitters, right? Like you can't get too far without talking about the first God of War nope. or even like Ninja nope. Gaiden. Or and whatnot. I think that I think at this point we're moving to the PS2, Xbox era, GameCube era at this yeah. point a little bit. Like you said, the big hitters back in the day, God of War, first God of War. And then we had all these uh, Devil May Cry, Ninja Gaiden. If I remember correctly, I think the first tried out were, maybe it was to that camera stuff. I think mostly we were having fixed camera angles in the maps. I think at the first God of War, I'm pretty sure that you were moving the map. And when you had a fight, basically, you could still tilt the camera. You, you, would, mm-hmm. you would never be around Kratos or the main character all the time as in the previous generation. Quote, quote. I yeah. think you always in a specific place LD level design camera that would fit well with the environment because that's a pretty impressive and crazy environment. So that oh, yeah. you want totally. to showcase. Level designers were a big part of all the God of Wars. Exactly. And these camps, you, you basically you were seeing the arena basically and it was mm-hmm. about your your space within the arena and not being able to handle walls or that bad stuff so transparency was a tough thing being able you could see behind like if you have any objects in front of you and they will make cry also was i think that at least the first one had the old like a resident evil formula of the fixed camera angles when you were walking so basically as you walk in the room this is the camera is always like that you move past this crate it twitches suddenly mm-hmm. and this other angle so it was always fixed an interesting thing when it's always fixed like that it's maybe easier to handle some of the inputs at this point because uh, yeah. it used to be uh, not relevant to your character but to your image on screen so maybe that was an easier way for them to handle uh, all the new switching direction because that's when execution went up to another level too right i guess once yeah. they kind of figured out to get the camera out of the way then they really asked a lot out of you right like oh, yeah, so that yeah, was yeah. interesting like i'm always curious about how a designer would approach that right like it's like okay how do you make this engaging is it all about combos is it about setting up in an environment? You know, like what were some of the cool things about those games that stood out? I think they were trying to touch different itch. But for me, I think one of the things that all of them had in common back in the day, like we would say, for example, take God of War, Devil May Cry, Ninja Gaiden, they were all about like you eat as many times or a person as you can. We really went away, I believe, from having it was a non-boss fight encounter that were only one enemy. It was a lot of an, how do we handle a lot of people? Like, God of mm-hmm. War, all the chains. The chains were, how do we handle all these combos with card control? Being able to mix from, why the, I, I hit 10 guys around me versus, I want to hit only that guy and make that big explosion happen. Same thing with Devil May Cry. I think Devil May Cry was maybe more about the number of hits because it was all about, you change your combo suites and your number of hits would increase and would get that spur department of being like grade S combo rank and then that yes. would also give you more XP, more orbs. So it was also serving as a self-promoting skill mechanic. Mm-hmm. You want more XP? You have to play and learn the, com- the combos to get more basis. It was a bit playing into that aspect a lot. It was also an easy way to make sure that you would not always repeat the same things. Because sometimes oh. combos you can get like, you know, that combo is super good and it always be good. So a way to balance that is basically if you do it two times, two, three times, you get less and less points. So you would yeah. lose your combo meter. So it was also a way to exactly not make sure that you stay into that uh, one, or say maybe two uh, favorable uh, gameplay chain. Yeah, I remember that. You're right. Where it's like, hey... They challenge your execution and knowledge of the combos by rewarding you with more XP so that you can learn even bigger, better moves. Exactly. But you had yeah. to switch you had to switch weapons or you had to switch movesets. Because if we're just doing the same launcher in the air, jump, three slashes, knockdown, launcher, you yeah. wouldn't get more. You would get some when you first put it off. And I remember if you keep, just keep doing that, you would get less and less and less until you get to the next fight. 
So I think they were mostly aimed on a lot of hits, a lot of that ranking new combos, try to always get the most that you can and mm-hmm. switch different, uh, try to play the most with the different play of the system as you could. And boss fights were mostly scripted, not using the same core foundation, yeah. but they're, they were not always, uh, they were they are maybe more cinematographic or more scripted. Like God of War was all about the, you hit that, it was all big creatures. Instead of having like these armies, it was mostly all these big mythological creatures, for example. Yeah, like the boss was the level, basically. Yeah, right? like they yeah. Did a exactly. They, they, when they push that way for it, the third and then the third, second and third one. But the bosses were sometimes the level itself, yeah, or the enemy. And then it was mostly do your normal combo that you learn against the other enemies. At some specific points, just press circle and be rewarded by an amazing kind of brutal animation that would transition you to the rest of the fight, basically. So I think the they were not always necessarily using the same challenges that you would see in normal fighting or the boss fights, mm-hmm. but they were more there to be cinematographically interesting. One that came to mind, and it's probably one of my favorites in that space, is Bayonetta. Oh, uh, man, yeah, Bayonetta. That was, that's a perfect example of that. Perfect example. It like marries all of those worlds together beautifully. And I don't know why that was the one that hooked me. I think it's because it's similar to Arkham where anytime there's this time fluctuation or slowdown, I get so much more into it for some reason, right? Like I'm always trying to find that counter to slow down time and then like abuse the hell out of it. That's the type of shit that hooks me. But a big part of all of that, whenever we're talking, what's the vocabulary of a combat designer? I know there's anticipation, there's like attack windows or timing windows. The lingo can differ from place to place, but generally mm-hmm. anticipation or wind-ups is the amount of time before an attack would take and would deal damage either from you to an enemy or from an enemy to you, basically, which is kind of the, the warning time on the enemy, basically. Then you have your your hit frames, which is where the damage is dealt. Recovery frames would be with the amount of time you are still locked into this attack animation after damage is dealt before you can keep resuming your normal um, navigation, movement, defensive, other offensive actions. Where you can interrupt or where you have control again. Exactly. I mean, basically, yeah. when you have control again of your character after a hit. And that's a lot of uh, where you do this kind of trade-off, basically. Quick hits, longer mm-hmm. High damage, but longer reactions are more punishable, like we see sometimes in Street Fighter, but uh, can easily be uh, taken advantage of by somebody else or an AI, for example. So usually you, they are high risk, high reward, because you want to have their damage be a bit higher sometimes to be competitive for that lack afterwards. So this, this is where we have a lot of levers to play with. Uh, yeah. specific like damages type of attacks into the the fight moveset in philosophy it's so fun when you have heavy attacks that interrupt or stagger or stun an enemy and it's so frustrating when, when they have stun. armor or yeah. they can absorb or they can't be interrupted right they have unblockable attacks I'm like you motherfucker like those always kind of punch you in the face yeah. and make you respect like okay i gotta watch the pattern yeah, exactly i gotta okay this is what the designer wants fine i'll do it exactly i mean it's also there to try to challenge a pair on different axes because mm-hmm. if you're very good at dodging and countering for example i think an enemy who does that will start challenging you another front basically because that same kind of uh, practice that you have which is and you you mastered it you're super good at parrying and attacking back but when that enemy is going to have our armor against that strike, for example, you know you need to try something else. You can't only rely on that kind of mechanic or skill set to just always blow through the game. And that's sometimes an interesting way to make sure that you switch styles also, that you get challenged on different axes in the game versus. Because there's two things that I love in combat systems. It'll usually always be some like tight timing counter window. Yeah. Or 
a really tight but powerful or satisfying parry, right? Like both of those are all about watching, waiting for your turn, hitting the button just right, or bringing up the defense. And now the enemy is super open for like your heaviest, meatiest attack, right? Like I love that to no end. And I, I can't explain to you why. I'm so curious. What is it about those mechanics that are so rewarding or satisfying? The mechanics that you're talking about specifically, which is just your typical example, like you're talking about like uh, a parry, which is often blocked when you get attacked sometimes. Uh-huh. And you're going to have, like you said, perfect evades or perfect, perfect uh, evades, yeah. dodges. That is usually, did you evade when you were close to get hit, for example? And uh-huh. what these two mechanics have in common is that they are, like we said a bit before, they are... The high risk. the epitome of the high risk, high reward. Because yeah. you're banking everything of that moment. Like you're making a choice when you do that. If I hit that tiny window, which is hard, it's way harder than just blocking or just spamming your evade or your, your roll skill. Because you could just get out easy, but you wouldn't get more out of it. But now what you're willing to do is you're betting on yourself. Mm-hmm. You're betting on yourself that if you made that window, that parry, yeah. you will get that reward. And when the game acknowledge that and when you can pull it off that moment of reward is earned because you put your skill down the line and it's a conscious choice yes i think this is really how it gets to most people because you're you parried and when it works you won and you won an high risk and the reward was high because if you just do it because sometimes you know when you just pick and mashing it happens hey it's fun you're happy you're as happy as is if you plan on pulling it off oh yeah i mean Oh, yeah, like, oh shit! It, oh yeah, I'm so good. Yeah, you oh cool, that's cool. I got it. Hey, easy, but not as much as if you plan on doing it. And I think that's the gamble on you that makes it worthwhile and that makes it come out on top. In that for that specific uh, example, it's true. I haven't seen any streams lately or anything, but I do know that there's a difference between watching a player or avatar who's very spammy, twitchy, right, button mashy and twitchy, versus like the super cool badass walking through and just like. You'll see the hand flick up or the shield come out just the right time and the critical hit. For me, that's what would make it also, personally. I think it's really, it's what you want to, the any players who play that feel the most dopamine. Like, you bet on yourself, if you win, we need to reward you. And you need to make it worth your while. So we're going to move on to the next big thing. And I think you and I both can talk about this for a while. But it was big. It was big for me when it came out, bro. <laughs> Yep. I, I was hooked, and this is definitely one of my top three franchises because it blends stealth and combat so uh-huh. beautifully. And you match that with an awesome character and IP that I've geeked True out that. since I was a kid. But when Arkham Asylum came out onto the scene, aye, aye, aye. I feel like it came out of nowhere. The yeah, world was not ready for this. It nope. came out of fucking nowhere. Yep. I would be so blunt as saying that the uh, Batman Arkham, or with maybe the free flow combat system genre that was yeah. brought by the, the amazing guy at Rocksteady, I think that's probably what would define, uh, if we go back to the evolution of gaming, basically, we talked about the first game, talked about the games were more like static, God of War, card control I think the free flow combat is maybe the, the other big milestone in that kind of uh, fighting games evolution in 3D world, basically. No other systems was really handling that like they did. Like, it was mm-hmm. another day. Like, usually you would hit 13 guys with one attack, all that kind of stuff. Like, Batman Arkham was all about you're hitting one guy, but it's how about you keep chaining and hit multiple guys at that one guy at a time. And it's that one-man army feeling of you between 15 guys. And I think yes. every blow feel 
more meaty because instead of having one generic attack that it's three, which it was oh, every attack felt like you would make the guy knock down on the floor and yeah. it, it every came. single attack, yeah. every single attack was visceral and meaty and felt the character super well and had a different kind of approach to it. It was not a, it was it was about the rhythm like Arkham. Arkham it is, felt like a music game, right? It's it, a mu- parts yeah. of it felt like I was playing Guitar Hero on a controller. Exactly, because mm-hmm. it's really it's uh, you keep pressing your attack button, and sometimes you have to converse with square, square, triangle, square, square, triangle, double mm-hmm. tap X to evade somebody with a gun. So it was always some kind of this musical rhythm that the AI tried to pull you through, and if you were reacting to it, you would perform. And you would perform well. Exactly. The game was a maestro. And if you followed what they kind of gave you and you and you had freedom as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like you had evade, you had your cape counter, right? Both of those were super strong. Mm-hmm. I, I think you couldn't really, there was no risk to using them uh, outside of breaking your combo typically based on timing, but it was very generous in a lot of aspects. It was extremely beautiful to watch anyone in action, right? Like uh, a beginner to a master both yeah. look great great the fluidity of that system the way they designed it to make the animations blend with the directioning oh, yeah. the the way you were handling target transitioning targeting the targets super easy where at the time you flick your stick you would get there like you had i think the arkham games had no whiffing in a sense that if you were in your free flow territory you couldn't yeah. miss you could get oh, blocked, yeah. you could That's get big. evaded, but you couldn't miss because even if the guy was 10,000 yards away, you would always reach him. <laughs> so it, you, you were removing a lot of the other things that people had to think about in other fighting games. Like, where mm-hmm. am I going to reach? I need to move. I don't need to move. Here is just keep the rhythm. Keep the punching. Keep, keep the rhythm. Keep eating them. Don't get it. Don't get it, but keep it happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of constant rhythm gameplay of you being on pressure of not getting it because that combo system was different too. It was, not, it was not about don't do these moves and do other moves. It was about you get it, it gets removed. And as long as you have it, keep, keep going, yeah. you will keep doing good. And we will reward you and you have and we'll keep rewarding you and that loop will go on and on and on. Yeah. And you you were just trying to maintain that. And that stress was always being one it away of losing that kind of momentum. Yep. Was kind of also being king of that you're betting on yourself. You're betting on yourself all the time. All the time you are at risk. All the time you are at risk of losing, not losing the game, but yep. using your enjoyment of the sequence, basically, your your rhythm and that works excessively well. Extremely. And remind me, was that the first game of this type that had this combo meter thing, right? So back to your point of you're in rhythm and you're playing this masterpiece, how every eight or ten hits, you then unlock your invincible takedown, right? Exactly. So it'd be like, you know, X, X, Y, A, and then like Y, B, right? Or triangle circle, right? Like things like this. And, and that's your big takedown. And then you're back in the flow. And then another big takedown, right? Like your crescendo big moment. I think other games did something similar. I think they might be the, the one that we're asking you to use it now, basically, right? or uh. give it to you as a very ephemeral resources. Because yeah. you could have other games, like Devil May Cry, I'm just giving you an example. I know that it was some combos that you would regen your mana pool for example. And basically, your mana was your way to do this higher level of moves, like the, all the takedowns and Batman, the special moves. All these you could do with spells in God of War, for example. They were kind of that. Or your brutal kills or your, your executions when a guy was low HP. But you could get back uh, mana and you would be the one that used it basically at any time you wanted. Where Arkham, basically, they were asking you, they were telling you, reach that rhythm and that mm-hmm. every eight hits, 
you can kill somebody. <laughs> and if yep. you don't use it, Take every out. other 10, 10 hits, you will be able to kill somebody. But if you didn't use that, we will not give it to you. Because you could not have more. Technically, if you have the... You couldn't other bank games, them. You couldn't bank him. They could even yeah. wait and wait, and I'm just going to blast them all out now. It was, no, keep that man so that you always wanted to keep that rhythm and always use it. Because as soon as uh, you use it, you can start building the next one. And how yeah. do you build the next one? By That's keeping the rhythm. Keeping the rhythm. And then you just keep it going. Keep it going. And that makes you want to stay in that loop forever. Yes. And that makes that loop even more valuable. Than the ones which was more like, oh, build up that magic meter or that special energy and use it whenever, which is good in its own right. I, I love games like that. Like, yeah. personally, it's, it's different kind of approaches. I love to be able to know, to say, I'm going to do it whenever I want. But I think mm-hmm. for the Arkham system, the way the invention did that, you want to keep that flow going all the time, it was a perfect fit for it. Like, you, well, it, it, meant that, it meant that that loop, that rhythm was so much more valuable all the time as you kept that going. You and I both love the shit out of this game. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know that was a huge recruiting piece for me when I was looking for my next place after Rockstar. When I got a chance to talk to Warner Brothers and they were like, hey, we made Arkham Origins. Come on over here. We're doing some interesting things, right? I had a lot of other opportunities on the table, but this was yep. kind of the most exciting for that reason, right? Like this was the only IP or game I really, you know, there was a handful, probably a Santa Monica project here or there. Yeah, was interesting <laughs> probably. As well. Because, I mean, speaking of that, that system still lives on to this day, right? A lot of other games implemented it, like the latest Spider-Man ah, put it into the... The free flow combat was... Uh... I wouldn't say copy because people would get inspired for it because it was good. It was fundamentally a new approach and a good system. So, oh yeah, especially for superheroes, right? Yeah, especially for superheroes like Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man. They have their own take on it and they do it very well and it fits Spider-Man very good. And they expanded on it too. Like it's not just like a straight-up copy. They do. They do. They have their own take on it, which is good. But the foundation-wise, it's clearly free for combat inspired. Mm-hmm. The first Captain America game, first Avenger game, was definitely a free for thing. And to be honest, one of the first okay decent game i've had with spray roll back in the day because batman was there but in terms of like avengers game but i remember game was not super good when he first came out and mm-hmm. that was free full combat and that was amazing and then many other games tried to do something a bit similar to uh to that mad max from Warner brothers mad max that's Shadows shadows of war shadows of mordor oh my god and that's if it's not if it's not an, an ffc inspired <laughs> system uh, but they are good and they all have their own take and fantasy on it oh yeah and, they're all enjoyable. It's very interesting because I do remember Shadow of Mordor caught me out of by surprise. I went over to my buddy Danny's place. He said, hey, Diaz, <laughs> you got to play this. And I, I didn't move from that guy's couch, man. Like, <laughs> I was, oh, my gosh, this is exactly free flow combat. But you have some insane abilities that take it up to this whole other level that's mapped really well to... Yep. What you were, right? You had this, the, the, the ghost, the ghost uh, yeah, yeah. slow motion arrow. Which was different than Arkham, because Arkham didn't have good and not good, but precision shooting, like having yeah. headshots, was not a part of what Batman was. You would snap on the guy with the batarangs, but it wouldn't be a thing. Like, they made it uh-huh. a thing, and that worked well in the system, too. So they had their own expansion on that type of Absolutely. Solution. And you map that with the, the Nemesis system, right? And it's just like, yeah, and then boom, so good. you had a recipe mm-hmm. for greatness. If we're talking about combat design, we're talking about the history of combat games. Now that seems to be the new trend, right? The new trend is the From Software games, right? Even uh, Jedi Fallen Order, even the Last God of War, right, has transitioned into this. Yeah, yeah, that's a very space. good point. Huh? I don't, I don't know what war? you even call it. What do you call this type of combat mechanic or system? Souls like, right? <laughs> I don't know. Souls like, yeah, 
souls. Man. There we go. Maybe yeah, I think you're right. After the old period, uh, yeah, I think uh, the Dark Souls, Demon Souls, Sekiro. I think yeah, God of War went full on in your back. Tight camera. It's funny because we kind of went back to the first implementation of the first first one that we said what started all this when you get in 3D was you were behind a guy in 3D and you had to manage all that. So we basically we get a little bit to uh, to that part. But I think yeah, it's a bit different where it's more about what enemy can do than mm-hmm. having this mass of enemy to handle. Like mm-hmm. uh, it's not about the crowd so much as this one guy can do these four attacks and know how to react to these four attacks instead of having four guys with one attack each, but then how do we handle these four guys together, basically. So it's a very interesting and a new take, and I think a take that is more and more enjoyed. And we are inspired by many different products, and I mm-hmm. think uh, people will like it. Hell yeah, especially co-op. Uh, my co-op. That's the first thing I said, going to know what happened when I did my interview uh, back in the day at the, for Origins, when they yeah. asked me, because they asked me, what would you do? What, what, what if you had to do one thing to the Batman franchise, and what would you do? And it was not boss fights. It was not for me at the time. The first thing I had in mind was co-op. That is the uh, only thing I ever wanted when I first played Arkham Asylum and when I played Arkham City. When you started having Robin DLCs and Nightwing, I'm like, yeah. that game should be co-op. That game would be so good with somebody playing with me. And that was the one yes. thing. And then back in the day, man, it wasn't possible to do that because. No. That was, that was the mandate of the what we're doing. You go to any single player developer and you start talking co-op, man, and that's like a easy like. Yeah. Hell no, you're crazy. We we don't you're have time. Crazy? For that. You crazy? And especially when you talk them, it's a melee brawler co-op because oh, God. Uh, right now uh, if you co-op games, you have them all around. You have Destiny, you have Outriders that oh, yeah. came out. But I'm not saying it's easy because it's not. But shooters, yeah, shooters, shooters make great great co-op games because of their inherent positioning and teamwork enemies of the world doesn't typically need to react differently to two That's players it. three players right you react the same way it's exactly one player four players five players well if you have to do and though like melee where you basically you're always mm. moving toward a guy then you have all this complexity in each case of what if we both hit the guy at the same time can you yes. hear me? If I get in front of you, do I hit you instead yeah. of hitting the guy? Where usually in shooting, you can more easily, I would say, cater maybe to a lot of these same problems. The bullet don't touch you. You don't see them. We don't need to have collisions on you. If you have bullets, it can shoot through you. It's yep. way harder to make it look good in melee. And yeah, so it was. it's a little bit stepping it up. I mean, Oh yeah, for sure. That was your vis- original vision when you first came into this game. So, as big fans of this game and genre, and as the combat designer, Uh-oh. you had the opportunity to go work on this for Arkham Origins as part of Warner Brothers Montreal. Like, you know, new studio, new team, new project with doing Arkham. How the hell did you get this opportunity? Where were you at the time? And what was it like when it's like, hey, Nick, you can do this thing? Walk me through that, man. <laughs> All right. Take me back in time, where you were, what you were doing. <laughs> Take you back in time. That was in 2011. So Arkham Asylum was already yeah. out. Oh, it was, it was already out for sure. Arkham City was already out. Arkham for City sure. was already for out. Sure, for okay. sure, for sure. 2011, I think Mass Effect 2. We had just released yeah. Red Dead Redemption. Assassin's Creed 1 was out there in the wild. Mm-hmm. It was clearly out Two there, yeah. was out there. Skyrim. Like we're all the big, uh, the big things that was uh, back in the day, and I was Mass on Effect a Mass Effect. 
And I was on um, where was I? I was on a project uh, that uh, was never released, unfortunately, at Ubisoft. It was a different take on uh, of a third-person action brawler game. What, what was the last thing you had shipped before that? Before project? that, before that, uh, the last thing I had shipped at Ubisoft was Prince of Persia: The Forgotten Sands. Was that like the Jake Gyllenhaal movie? Yes, it was kind okay. of the was the game that was released at the same time as the the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, Prince of Persia. So whereas uh, I came on that for the combat, uh, maybe in Prince of the Forgotten Sands, and then I moved to that other project, which I would say was heavily inspired by Free Flow Combat System and Arkham. Yes, like sir. The, it was the big thing uh, back in that time, so the goal was to try to make Ubisoft's own kind of thing with, in so that regard. You were researching it and breaking it apart and reverse engineering that bitch, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, and they had some Ubisoft had some very good games that were trying to uh, not mimic, but got inspired a lot by by. Uh, if you feel like if you look at the Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, they had this mechanic of if you were starting killing somebody, you could chain kills people, and it was kind of your own way oh, of making yeah. that rhythm go and flow and keep killing and keep killing at that range and all that stuff. So yeah. they really had the kind of exploration, but uh, I was on a project was trying to dwell in the meeting gritty part of like uh, what would it be to make like free flow combat in the Ubisoft's uh, Ubisoft stake. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it didn't get uh, the release on Force City, so I was inter projects waiting for a new uh, assignment. And at that time, uh, one of my good friends from QA back then, who was at UB and that left for Warner, contacted me, JP uh, O'Day. Uh, Shout out to JP. Shout out to JP, best, uh, best LD director I know. And uh, yeah, he just contacted me. He was working uh, as a level, design, level designer uh, back then. Uh, already at Warner Montreal and he just he just put me hey man <laughs> you wouldn't know what they, what we're doing here and back in the day if I remember correctly I've heard about Warner Brothers sure. in Montreal but sure. they were the, the thing was that there was the rumor was that oh they're doing just doing online games or Looney Tune games I'm like okay that, that's, that's right that's I cool but I wasn't that. Uh, but I wasn't like yeah, I wasn't kind of uh, I was I was younger so I was like nah, I'm doing triple fucking Triple oh, A, yeah. sorry, and I'm, uh, me and you both, I want bro. to do big things. And so when when he told me that they had something interesting in my domain, I'm like, you know what? I've been 10 years at Ubisoft at that time. I'm in between projects. I'm not going to make anybody's schedule cry if I leave or anything. So why the hell not? Why not just have a look? And then <laughs> and then when, you, when you've when been reverse engineering or checking all these games, being a fan of all these games, trying to understand how they work, Getting told that yeah you we're making a, a not a sequel but kind of a prequel game in the Arkham world with that system and was like yeah I I love Batman I love these games and if you give me a chance to to open up the hood and see how it's working inside yeah yeah, yeah that's like the, that's like the truth I want the truth so, so I, like, I was uh, yeah was the was the offer good. Was it strong compared to UB? Was or was the IP all that mattered? Truth be told, the IP was everything that mattered. Mm-hmm. But the offer was good. Awesome. awesome. So, <laughs> so best, best, best of both, both worlds. worlds at this time. So yeah, I always say three things. I, I call it the three P's. <laughs> yeah. For what we do, right? So there's the there's the pay, there's the project. Yep. And there's the people. People. Right. So I if, get if you. Usually, two out of the three is usually a, a winner. If you can get the three. Then that's an easy decision. You yeah, don't leave that place. Yeah. So you got the job, you got the offer. The project was amazing. Got the offer. Uh, people seemed great. What was the project like? Was it just in preconception at the time? Did they have something you could play? <laughs> Boy, 
they had something to play. They, I think they were just finished with their first virtual slice. They were, okay. which was kind of their first approval meeting with the, the publisher, with the Burbank. Okay. And the game, a lot changed since that day. To be honest, the game was at different moments or sections of gameplay aspects that were never to be seen in the final product. Oh. Very, very, very different one. Still tying the core of FFC and the five of the mm. Batman vibe, but not necessarily the same point of view of characters being showcased as the main or important protagonist at the time. I won't say more in that. Oh, shit. Interesting. So that was a different take. And uh, eventually, I think it kind of went and it's now we'll just do, let's do a good Batman story. Okay. Instead of trying to uh, portray different uh, point of views or all that okay. stuff, it went to a more, let's do just a good Batman story setting Christmas. And uh, let's try yeah. to uh, bring over, expand a bit the role gallery. Of the yeah yeah in that game, did you guys essentially get a fork from Rocksteady? Like, hey, here's a game, here's the engine, do the thing, or did you have to make it yourself? Or no, I think no. By the time Rocksteady was working with Warner Brothers, basically, and I think they uh, delivered, they branched off there. I think they branched off at some point after uh, Arkham City. I don't think we had all the we didn't definitely didn't have all the latest uh, engine terms because they were building. uh, Arkham Knight while we were doing that. Oh, okay. So they were still working their ass off doing an amazing game on the other side of the, in Europe. But I don't think we, I think we got a a branch of the uh, Unreal and their, their settings that was closer to the shipping of Arkham City, but nothing passed. I may be wrong, I may be wrong, but it was not that. uh, So we had to do what what was already there, which was already super good. Mm-hmm. And then we knew we would, we would, we didn't have like uh, a lot of time. So the goal was let's pl- try to play on the strength what they have and where can we try to push it. I was happy to have uh, tried trying to reverse engineer that for as well because I had a good idea of what were the strengths and the weaknesses of the system. So when the mandate was let's try to push it in different directions of what we know it's good for and how we can try to make it different. It was a cool mandate to have. I remember a few awesome moments of Origins. I think Origins was a fantastic addition to the franchise. But the biggest thing was the bosses, right? And and having that one-on-one that the other ones didn't really have. I don't know what you you could speak to that. Was that always (laughs) a plan? Was that something that you guys had to (sighs) figure out? It's funny because it's it's kind of a a wager that I had with a friend at UB. Because we're discussing like a all these free-flow combat, and it's like, what are the weaknesses of the free-flow? Because it's good, and I was the one saying back then, I'm like, the biggest challenge is that it's good when you have 15 guys to fight. Yeah. If you have one guy, and it's in its basic implementation, I would say, if you take all the, Ar- the Ar- like Arkham, Arkham Islam, Arkham City, and Arkham Knight as a bit, as a, a bit less of it, but the thing is, if you had one guy, the guy, it was meant to blow to the guy. You're Batman. Like, mm-hmm. three punches is out. Like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. even leave it, be do anything more. Three punches is out if he's the last guy. So, uh, it was very good to fight when you had a lot of guys with different weapons and have that rhythm going. Sustaining it with one person was hard. Most of the boss fights in Arkham were fight a guy a bit, then, oh, uh, let's spawn you more guys. And you have way yeah. guys to spawn, you fight them, and then you go back to doing like the one damage blow on the other character, like the real boss, and then more guys to spawn. Like, all the scary yep. formations were oh, like oh, that. Oh, they had the, uh, all those, uh, the, the Venom guys. I, I the, forgot what they were called, those big giant dudes. The, the Titan guys. The also, Titans, yep. yeah. Exactly. So it was mostly uh, that, and, uh, and then it was kind of, it's hard to make it look like you have one, character was as strong as Batman in that regard. So that stroke kind of came with that challenge in mind. How can we 
Yeah, and sorry, uh, if people didn't know, if you scream in pain and the death stroke boss fight in our camera region, I'm sorry, it's me. <laughs> I will. It's you. I it's who? I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I wish we had more time because definitely uh, we have made more work on it. But we had the the goal was to try to teach you on on counter attacks in the game. Oh yeah, and I you think counter you, the fuck out of you death stroke, it, man. <laughs> when you beat the stroke, you knew about counter attacks in the game. <laughs> At least that worked. I'm sorry for the pain. You had to endure to get through. I feel this way about from software games, right? I feel like, man, these are hard. These are punishing, right? Like, and when I played Origins, I was such a fan of free flow. I, I feel like I knew it inside and out that by the time I got to the bosses in Origins, it was really an extension of the mastery, right? Where I can appreciate the challenge if this was your first time in this world. But if you were coming as a fan that plowed through the first two, it was a great extension into mastery of that mm-hmm. system. Yeah. But that's just me. Oh man, thank you. Because that's what's exactly what was the goal. Basically. Mm-hmm. But we when we laid out all the the main villains as bosses, we what we tried what it wasn't just me, we were a lot working on it, but uh, when we kicked out the process, the the intention was let's try to fit one theme or one concept about the core fight system on each of these bosses. We had a very Zelda-esque approach. Like a like a lock and key thing. Where the mission before was kind of exposing you to using that. And then the boss was the one practice the one you had to master the mechanic to beat it and then you unlock basically you it was about to use it in the world. That's a great formula to be fair, right? Like you teach it and then the whole encounter, the level or the mission is all about reinforcing that, reinforcing that and then test it, right? Final yep. exam. You got to keep failing until you pass it. Exactly. And we kept thinking, like, what would be the concepts for all those? So the stroke ended up being like the counter mechanic. Like, it's counter mm-hmm. mechanic and the use of the back club with fire, basically. Mm-hmm. So all the dungeon was based on grappling stuff, pulling stuff down to be able to get there. And then I think that's where we introduced the martial artist, which was a new enemy that was at two counter icons. So you had to counter twice. Yes. So everything about the new counters I wanted to push, we pushed there in that map before. And the stroke mechanic was basically hit him and to make sure that we'd be able to handle Batman being like a one-man army. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's play the Batman game on the player. Like, what do you do in the game? You punch, punch, punch. At some point, you just counter somebody who attacks you. So we'll make that stroke be like that. So you, as soon as we're punching him, sometimes he would trigger his counter attacks. And then the layers at which you had to counter is counter to get back the end on him. Would increase as we level as we go down in the the boss fight basically. So you you have always the same sequence or the same rhythm to it as you would in the previous phases. So you could get accustomed mm-hmm. to it. You had to really wait and press, wait and press. Because in Batman, if you double press your counter, you were done. You so it was not about mashing. It was our Batman? It was a uh, was It was about being uh, rhythmic and having mm-hmm. like your time presses basically. So that was it was trying to. Uh, and compass mostly, and then we had other buses on different themes. I think a, a question red. about that. A question about that, because that brings me back to I'm used to playing it on like hardcore mode, right, with no mm-hmm. UI. Because ju- again, there was so much realization and animation beauty that if you watched it enough, you knew the windows, right? Yep. But I completely forgot about the great UI feedback that that game had, right? Each of the counter, each of the UI icons. Right. If it was a knife, it was yellow. If it was unblockable, it was red. Right. And all these spoke to the color of the face buttons. Right. So there was just layers and layers of feedback of like, this is what we want you to do. Right. To that lock and key. I'm Mm -hmm. curious for Origins. Yep. How was that double counter 
thing designed, right? Because I, I thought it was really well done as, as something to layer in to this already deep combat system. Yeah, I mean, basically what we said is we already have this kind of mechanic in the game because we since Arkham City, they had enemies that could bunch up and attack you twice or two attack you at the same time or three. So you already had the mechanic of now we have two, three counters in a room to be able to counter the three guys. Was that in Arkham City when they that added that? Yeah, Arkham City had that. Arkham City had the guys who would come two by two uh, or three at the same time, and you had to yeah. do three counters instead of one. You had to do one, so two, they, three, one, two. They, they mix it up at this point uh, there, and they would say, well, let's do one guy alone who does that instead of having three guys. So it's going to have, we're able to manage having less guys on the floor. And the other thing that this guy had also in his moveset was he could counterattack Batman as well. So he was the only enemy, like the stroke, if you just punch him, he would be able to push you back and try to strike. And you had to counter at this point. You had to quickly react from an attack to a counter. Where no enemies were doing that in the other games. Other games before. So that's why we, that's how we tried to push the counter mechanic on the character. And I think in terms of feedback and where it went, I think we went uh, very simple. We kept the same coloring because, I mean, you don't, you don't reinvent what is already working great. Mm-hmm. And I think we just added the... Uh, two, I think there was lightning bolts or the feedback yep. above their head. I think we had another set of those. Basically, yep. and as you press yep. only once, you would just remove the first one, and you had, yep. you had the normal one after. So you you would instantly know that oh, they had double the lightnings, and if you press, we remove some. So it was coming as pressed twice for this one. Yep. It was it was tight, man. It was tight. There was a lot of boss characters in that game. Obviously, Deathstroke was a big one. Yeah. Was there another one that you worked on or another favorite? Either end of the spectrum, right? Like your your favorite or your most painful oh, that boy. you want to talk about. Favorite or most pain- I think I'll like them, to be honest. I don't think there's any one of them that is bad. I forget the one guy that you, it's like a one-hit kill. Ah, the executioner. Yeah, I guess Next. in, in <laughs> retrospect, <laughs> executioner is probably the one that I'm, I wish we had done more. It was an interesting joke. We could have done something cool with him. That's for sure. Was that always the plan to make him a one hit? I don't think so. To be honest, <laughs> was that was a clever scoping? I mean, it's been a while, so I may be wrong, but I think there was, I think there was some, yeah, I think there was some ideas of uh, making him ex- extending on the kind of the stun stick archetype enemy ah. into that guy as a boss fight, but it didn't stay long. We had a lot, a lot of other bosses to to manage, but I think one of the best one I think after that was Bane. Not uh, Bane. The first time you see Bane, first Bane boss fight. Uh, this one was very interesting because this one was about the mechanic of the takedown, which is kind of that super move that makes you keep that rhythm into that loop. That I take that guy and I just break his leg because I'm Batman and I just keep doing these takedowns. Bane was about that. It was about can you raise this combo up to be able to do a takedown, which would mess up his Venom back, which mm-hmm. would then be able for you to deal damage, basically. So it was about this and the beatdown. Beatdown was introduced in Arkham City. Where he was a cape stun, it would just like. Lay down yep. like the crazy Wing Chun punches until a straight KO. So it was about these two mechanics. And I think the fight itself with Bane was great because you had this good moment of, I need to feed that guy, but he's way too powerful now. And we had the waves of enemy coming in. So you had a good back and forth of, focus him, but I need these guys to stay alive because I need my combo to stay up so I can do a takedown on him uh-huh. and, and mess up his Venom back. So I think that was super interesting. This is something that is worth highlighting a bit is whenever you're embarking in a game, those, that's that first encounter, that first experience usually gets a lot of love by the team. You know, you spend easily like 70% of the production on the first 30% of the game. Yeah. And and you could tell this this one was definitely gripping. It really sucked you in. It showed you that, okay, I'm in for a new experience in this game. Because, yeah, the fight with Bane felt very fresh, felt very new, very interesting. 
Okay, so you knew the key pieces of combat that you wanted to reinforce. I'm curious if you remember, right? It's, it's a good amount of, of, of time ago, right? This is what, like 2012, Seven 2013? Seven. Yeah. yeah, buddy. Do you remember what it was like working on that, right? Like, is it again going back to the to the Holy Trinity, right? Like a lot of programming iteration, a lot of animation investment and requests. I'm curious, was there anything you tried that didn't work out? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh god, yes. I mean, I was getting a new project. It was Batman. I was tripping balls. You were so excited. Yeah, exactly. So, but the good thing is you're working with people you knew. Some of them I knew, but most people was new. Uh, to First time. In, yeah, game, in the game design department or animation. Yeah, it was mostly new people that I still work with and I, I love them a lot even to this day. But yeah, I knew some people that were from UB mostly because I was going from UB and I, I didn't go anywhere else before. Mm-hmm. But uh, mostly new in the place. And yeah, we were crazy. Like, yeah, there's stuff that, yeah, that's not even a question. Like the... I can't remember the first Deathstroke boss fight was all about uh, it was Predator and combat. Oh wow! And it was it was the kind of same setup we would in the same place with the story with Penguin, but he had to jump on you at first. You had to fight. Freeze him. was kind of like that, right? Mister Freeze yeah. was yeah, exactly. Predator mixed with combat was mostly Predator, and you would be done at the end. What we had the first proposal was yeah, you started with the fight as the Deathstroke fight was like the, all the part of this, the Deathstroke fight was planned for the fight part, and mm-hmm. then you would transition into punching him out of the arena basically, and then you would be able to hide automatically. And then it was he was trying to find you, and he was taking his guns and he had all his uh, his crazy guns and tech that he could flush you out, and you had to do a specific amount of takedowns on him before he would go back into fighting him in the arena and keep that back and forth going basically, and that all. Predator stuff got cut quite early. Thanks to, <laughs> thanks to uh, Michael McIntyre for the thing we My see the light of reason uh, on that one quite early, even if I was, no, we need it. <laughs> yeah, like, we always want it. We didn't, and it's probably better if we didn't do it because it would have been a lot of time we didn't have put on all the other great boss fights in the game. Shout out to Michael McIntyre. He was creative director for Origins? Design director. Design director. Okay. Yeah, man. I got to work with him probably not, maybe a year, maybe less than a year when I was with you on Sabbath. And super awesome guy, man. And then ultimately, I look back and that's all you really want from your director, right? Is to make those hard decisions to yeah. scope something down for the betterment of the rest of the game, right? That that can really shine or is really missing that love. So shout out to that dude, man. And I know that the last boss fight, the Bane boss fight, where he takes all the, where he becomes this, this the Bane that we know, like the big bulgy. Is this the one where you're like hiding in the vents? Yeah, the one that is supposed to, because that, that one was supposed to be the boss fight, wanted to be the kind of the Mr. Freeze, the stealth uh, boss fight, yeah. basically, of the game. And it came in a bit too late. I mean, I think we did great. The intention was, like, riding him, making him go to the traps, the feeling of him searching you, all the stuff was great. But, yeah, we were kind of pressed in time terms of uh, the map, the layout, the thing of things mm-hmm. he could do. Uh, but it was supposed to be the Mr. Freeze homage, which we kind of sure. tried to redo in the Cold Cold Art DLC, which you found oh, yeah. Mr. Freeze. And, the last boss fight where we have to try probably not to be uh, on the same level because Mr. Freeze boss fight in Arkham City is still one of the, if not the best boss fight of the all Arkham series. Uh, I mean, the way it was presented back in the time was astonishing. But okay. yeah, we tried to do something a bit diff- similar, tried to take homage, but a bit different with having more uh, things to do with the reinforcements in the map and different objectives in the map, playing with the stealth. 
Man, man, I, I love talking about this. I could talk about this all day. You shipped that bad boy. I was a big fan. I loved it. I think at its time, critics were harsh on it for whatever reason. People looking back on it today, though, it's funny what history does because people looking back on it today are like, holy shit, did you play Arkham Origins? That was a good fucking game, right? And I, I hate to see this when when studio gets the feedback from critics and it puts a damper on the work you guys did because I thought that that was something to be proud of as a first time production with that team that studio i think you guys killed it knocked it out the park and i'm curious looking back on that experience today what did you wish you knew what are you most proud of about the bus fights bus fights Mm -hmm. were definitely one of the allies i did some bus fights at ubisoft before mostly the bus fights and prison prison for the forgotten sense but uh, doing that with this character and the team and the energy that went around and the amount of effort that went into all of them and to make them good was intoxicating. It was driving me every day to come to work, that's for sure. What I wish I knew back in the day is be reasonable. <laughs> be reasonable. I wish I, I had that more in mind. What do you mean? It's, it's okay to do some things, but do that. I think it's better to do them very well than try to spread themselves too much. Mm. A little bit, and I think at some point we suffered a bit into uh, at, especially at the end because we tried to liaise two different regards. Like I said at the beginning, was some different characters, maybe some other approaches that were there. I mean, it, it's part of the, any project you explore. But personally, mm. in my design, when we approached all the boss fights, like, like I said, the Deathstroke fight at a stealth section, they were all like pretty much blown up. Like they were a lot of extra stuff. So I was excited, but I wish maybe. I would have been able to have a better rationalize basically the, the production constraints at the time to be able to make sure that the, everything had the most out of it. Those are great words, Nick, because developers, we all go through the same thing, right? We, we get really passionate about a feature or delivering the on the original vision as laid out. And, and when you're an owner, when you're the combat designer, right, you want to get everything in there. Yeah. Right? You want every single idea, concept you to make it. And it's... It's, it's Arkham Batman. You don't want to fuck it up. Like it's, <laughs> it's one of the best, cool, fun things people enjoy in this time frame. Back, I mean, still today, but still. back then it was... Still looks good. They were there, so I'm, I'm very happy of what we did. I mean, I understand, uh, I understand the, the critics, don't get me wrong, but I think at the time, like, it wasn't that long ago that Arkham City came out, we were coming out. So there maybe people didn't get the, it was kind of the, the period of Ubisoft doing Assassin's Creed after Assassin's Creed after Assassin's Creed. Yeah, and they both the got tired. And there are some amazing games. Like same thing happened with other franchises like Assassin's Creed Rogue. Amazing Assassin's Creed game. Amazing. You play the Templar. Amazing game. Good storyline. But it was maybe the 12 in the line. It was the end of the console generation. They get really unseen. But I've been recently very good games. Good story. Uh, at the peak of what I think was AC, personally, in terms of the system and the fun and the fantasy. Black Flag was just, it was before. So yeah, it's the last one because I think Rogue took all the bold stuff from Black Flag and expanded on it. Mm-hmm. So amazing game. So I think we suffered a bit from that also. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, with the time concern we had and the team and the team members uh, that were limited, but it's so good at what they were doing. I think we did something great. Oh, yeah. And uh, I will always be proud of it. Hell yeah, you should be. You should be. How long was the production on that? Or how long were you on it? Hey, boy. eh? I think maybe one year. Oh, nice. One year, two months, something like that. It was really like a, let's make it good and we don't have that much time of iteration. So maybe if I count out the DLC, one year and a half, if I count the sequel to ours. Pedal to the metal. 
those are amazing times for any developer, right? It's like you got a year, maybe a little yeah. more. This division, this is where we're at. Let's let's ship this bad boy, let's man. Let's ship this bad boy. You learn so much. Pressure makes oh, diamonds, yeah. man. Like, oh yeah, and and helps you make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise be willing to make. So you ship that bad boy. At some point, I find out about the beautiful city that is Montreal. I come aboard. I'm on a different yeah. project. At some point, we're able to finally ally and join forces. Fusion. <laughs> Fusion, baby. <laughs> I have the best seat in the house. If I'm coming in to do AI boss design, yeah. I get the best seat in the house next to the combat designer that pumped out Origins and is doing that for this next project. It was a great time. It was short, felt short-lived. I, I left before we can really finish the thing that has now become Gotham yeah. Knights. Hell Yeah. I'm super hungry for this game. I'm so excited for you guys. I can't wait till this thing is out in the wild and I get to play it on my Xbox Series S or PS5. Or maybe I'm playing it on the cloud. Who knows where the hell I'm playing this thing. But I will be there. This shit looked really good at the DC Fandom. I'm curious, when that thing was going live, what did you feel when you were watching it? That's been uh, everything I've been working from since Arkham Origins. So it was good to let people know that we were back and we were not done with trying to deliver on, on all the fans of the DC universe, on mm-hmm. all these characters and these experiences. And then we wanted to make also sure that uh, we give you our own take on things. And that we mm-hmm. try to do similar to others can do, like inspire and take things in a different direction from the amazing uh, foundation that was brought over in the Arkhamverse. What I saw at DC Fandom was Nightwing and Batgirl, and I think that's a great one-two punch. And it's interesting because Arkham Knight did a great job of letting you play in that space, right? When you had like the Batman and Robin encounters or the Batman yeah. and Nightwing encounters where you can you switch. Could switch characters, tag them in and out, have these dual tag Teagle combos. And even one stealth room, I believe, we could uh, center Robin around in Arkham Knight. Uh, yeah. I love to see developers pushing it, putting their foot in the water, touching, touching, and now to where Gotham Knights is, right? That's super exciting, bro. You have a lot of experience under your belt. You're super knowledgeable at what you do. You have a very compelling background because you you came from QA and you broke into design. Yeah. And I want to know for anybody that can relate or anybody in that space, right, that's trying to make a jump or they're thinking about where they should start, any words of wisdom or stories that you can offer with regards to what it took for you to make that jump from QA to game design? My best advice would be don't be afraid of change. That's because, to be honest, to this day, I wouldn't be doing what I am doing if it was not from Mark Bessner. Oh, Shout out, to Bless, Mark. Uh, shout out to Mark, uh, programmer uh, back then, uh, Lee, the programmer on uh, Combat Cell, I believe, on mm-hmm. the first Assassin's Creed. That was on the first Assassin's Creed. AC1. Uh, AC1, dev tester on the combat team. And uh, there was an opportunity back then. And then at first, I was doing good work, I believe, in the QA department at Assassin's Creed. And they wanted to keep me there. So when I had a shot at game design, because it was an internal project, and I applied because they opened it to all the testers. And I, I got that lucky that the, an option up appeared that they need the, uh, one of the QA dev testers having interviews for one of uh, an opening. I applied and my instinct was to turn it down because I love the AC team. I love the combat team and all these promises of being able to be more in touch with the designers on AC to learn more and all that stuff. When I was 
in front of the unknown, well, undoing, straight up doing the, the new project and leaving all that behind. And then at first I said no. And then when everything was over, Mark told me, please think about it. Like, don't say, don't say no now. And then we thought, we thought, and I turned it around and I'm like, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a train you need to grab. And when, and when I did say, no, I'm going to do it, said, I'm sad, but I'm happy you did. Like, and he said, I'm sad for us, but I'm happy for you. So that was a shout out to Mark because, and it was totally true. And I would say the best thing to do is be, I mean, if you love games and you want it, be all you can be. If you work in QA, make sure you're doing an amazing job and make sure that that job is done to the best you can. And make sure that you want to deliver the best product ever. And people will know that. It will be noted. It needs to come with passion, I think. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if you transmit that passion, if you communicate well, and if you're willing to put in the effort, because nothing comes for free, for sure, I think people will see that. And I think all the good people I know in games industry, like John and like all of my good friends back in Montreal, they have that passion in them, and then people will see it clear. So I'm not going to lie. Luck always helps. When people always oh, yeah. That's the world we live in. But inherently, if you love what you do and you want to do it for because you love games mm-hmm. and you're willing to put the time in it and do the best you can, no matter what your role is, people will denote that. And that's how I got on Dev QA from all the QAs and on Assassin's Creed, one of the biggest projects back then, because I wanted to be... Not the best, but I wanted to do the best and work with the team to make sure that we were delivering the best. And all the people who got there at the time during dev test had that mentality. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know there's a lot of amazing QA people making the jump. One person I remember I had my eyes on that. I was like, okay, this guy, I want to groom him. I want to help him get into helping me work on this AI system was Anthony. And I think you yeah. told me the great news that he oh, he's made the jump. He's the machine. That's a nickname. He's made the jump. He's now, uh, yeah. What is he now? The he machine. went from Dev2A to... Dev2A to uh, associate uh, game designer. So, and he's handling more than a fair share of AI. More than any associate designer should ever manage. And he's doing it well. And yeah, he's an amazing new recruit. And oh, yeah. thanks to your grooming. And he has a passion. Like I, like I said, you can see him. He's, he's willing to give it his all. And he mm-hmm. loves what he does. And it shows. And when we have people like that, it's fruitful to make sure that we can foster them into becoming more than what they can. It's interesting because I could usually tell pretty fast the type of people who have a good way of looking at things. Right. You have developers of any kind. I don't want to single out QA. Right. But you get a lot of ideas or feedback or comments or bugs that are like, hey, they should do this or I'm expecting them to do these things. And I remember when I was talking with Anthony, it was always very precise and detailed. And he always came from the standpoint of like, hey, I've played it a ton. I've been watching it. I've read the docs and they say this and this is what I'm used to seeing. But I'm not seeing that. Is that by design? Did you think about this right? And so those are conversations that you have with a designer normally, yeah. right? So it just felt super natural and organic and and instantly, instantly made that connection. I'm like, all right, this guy, this guy has yeah. it, right? And why you want to do that? Because he wanted to do the best QA job on AI he could for the game. And he's still like that. And we all love him for it. Oh, yeah. Because he's, uh, he cares and it's all about it the game and that's what matters. Okay, brother, we are going to enter the lightning round. Oh, yeah. What's the last game you finished? I finished Demon's Souls, a remake on PS5. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. How many hours did you put into that sucker? First game, 25, and then in, and I did a new character, and NG plus one, I'm 45. In. 
Okay. What's the last book you read? I think it's probably the ending of The Walking Dead. It's been a while though, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely okay. the thing that the last comic of The Walking Dead because I didn't uh, when the confirmation started I didn't get the last piece and I really wanted to know how it was ending and I think that must be yeah it must probably be the last book I read. All right, all right. What's the thing you enjoy the most about being a combat designer? Why combat more than anything else? Because it's because I think I'm a, I'm a shonen at art basically. So I love these. I love animes. I love the scuffles, the match of power, yeah. the, the the test of skills. So far, I don't know. It's it speaks to me, I guess. But just Hell making yeah. video games is probably the best answer because I would do anything for video games. If you work in a thing. There's a level of like, oh, I don't enjoy combat systems because I know how they work or I just care about my thing. But with you, it's fantastic because we we geek out of any game that has anything fun where you can punch and, and stab and grab and throw oh, and dodge yeah. and parry. And then we definitely throw down in Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and Injustice. We will dance this dance. This dance. To the end of time. <laughs> this dance, this salty dance <laughs> of you kick my ass at Street Fighter and I just Batman you at Injustice. And then. Bro, you are, you are so good at the Nether Realm Fighters, man. I want to get to that level. I want to get to that level. Okay, what's your favorite part about working from home? Being able to de- de- define work times where I cannot be interrupted. That's for me is the, like, I can say this afternoon, the three hours. I can just work and I will not be pugged or poked by somebody coming to your desk and that stuff. Like I can really define specific moments where I can actually work, not do meetings, not do follow-ups, not just work on the game. And that is great. It helps me focus a lot. What do you miss the most about being in the office? Free coffee. <laughs> <For real. laughs> how many how many coffees in a day normally when you were in the office in the office i ah, mean normal day it's two like maybe okay. one in the morning one then one after lunch maybe Perfect. during the afternoon our That's day reasonable. is three or four <laughs> double up, <laughs> double up. but now what i miss the most by going to the office is the the team the teamwork feeling like the vibe of the team mm-hmm. we, we have it and remote it's not the same when it's not the same you're kind of all there together, yeah. somewhere working actively, where we can interact toward the same goal. Like I know we're still doing it remotely; we all work, but it doesn't feel the same for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have the feeling that I'm there with all these people trying yeah. to fight our way to making it the best thing ever. I still have it. It's not the same. I'm with you. I believe that, man. I remember the feeling of being in the gameplay pit with yeah. you guys, where you were working on something, I was working on something. You know, Jerome was there, Vincent, mm-hmm. Rashawn, uh, the animators, right? And they would come by and we would look at something. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. That's it. That. Oh, we got to change that. Oh, you know, and it's it's the casual free floating, right? Somebody's walking yep. by. It's not planned. Right now, today, you got to plan fucking everything. You got to yep. schedule the time. Schedule you every gotta time meet. somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. We call that the, the kind of organic development. Meeting new team members also, I miss it. Because right now, uh, usually when you have somebody on the team, we present it to everybody. Like We make sure that you, you go to lunch with the guy oh, and all that yeah. stuff. Now we have a lot of new hires, and I've never seen them. And That's I maybe never speak to them because they're working in some other departments, but we never mm-hmm. had a, a meeting to present them or like, uh, you know, because uh, they're just the, and I'm happy that we, they are, they are with us mm-hmm. because they do a good job, but it's just sad that we don't get a chance to uh, see the team grow in person with the yeah. new persons, that we, that new people that join us. I would push on you as a senior slash lead almost, right? Like definitely go out of your way when and if you can. I know you're super busy, right? Like you guys are 
balls to the wall on this thing, but it's so helpful to the new blood to have people reach out and, and take time to get to know them or talk to them or, about whatever, because me, I onboarded completely virtually at EA, right? I've never been in the office. I met nobody, right? Everybody's been virtual and it's been easily 50% of my job, man. It's just just being social, yep. making the meetings, doing the FaceTime, just to establish the rapport that's so important if you're a designer, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of what we do is, is conversational. Oh, yeah. It's, it's negotiations. <laughs> it's, it's understanding the problems and the pain points. And if, if they don't know you, they don't like you, they're not going to be as open as you need True. them to no, be. No, you're totally right. Yeah. We are the glue that kind of makes all the departments talk to each other. Where you, do yeah. you need all these guys to talk. You need animation to talk to sound and to VFX sometimes, mm-hmm. the camera guys. and yeah, so yeah. I always say that we we wear the, the producer hat in part, yeah. right? Oh, like yeah. We definitely have the benefit of having some great producers that kind of see the things before they bubble up. But a, a lot of the times they're not there, right? And, and, and you have to do that part. Yes. Last question of the lightning round is if you were not doing this, yep. what would you be doing? Probably board games. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the easiest thing I would uh, that really try to make. Uh, it's, either, it's either board games, but board games came in later. Like I, I really was into video games, and as I grew older now, I really enjoy board games. Like uh, mm. a whole lot more. But I think if it would just not have worked for some reason, I would be either a writer. Probably a writer. Mm, narrative guy, huh? Yeah, I was writing a lot. I wrote I wrote a few books back in the days, but never published. Just a few books for kids. And, and uh, yeah, probably a writer or a publicist. I love ads. I love publicity. For some reason, there's something that hooks me there. I can see that. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So is there anything you're working on that you want to promote? Are you guys hiring? Where can people get a hold of you or see what you're up to or what to get the latest Gotham Knights news? We are definitely hiring Warner Bros. Game Montreal. Please join the Gotham Knights adventures. You can just Google Gotham Knights or go to our website at wbgamesmontreal.com. You can Google it. Montreal is a good place to be. John can attest for that even oh, yeah. in the times of quarantine and this weird time that we're having. Still a great place to be. Summer is coming up. That's the best time in Montreal for oh, yeah. sure. And yeah, Gotham Knights. Can't wait to have people play it. That's oh, the, yeah. that's going to be the the big baby I want to. I think, uh, I think you guys just announced too that like 2022? 2022, definitely. Oh, yeah. We all want to make sure that we give the best product we can and we make justice to all the artwork we put into it from from that bad, time bad. my pre-order is in i will put a link to all of that in the show notes thank you so much i have a tradition on the show mm-hmm. and that's if you've had a good time sitting in the hot seat falling out of the play area is there anyone you would nominate to fall out of play area next time hmm that's a good question I think from all the co-workers I have at the moment, I would love for some reason to tell you Thierry Lavac. <laughs> yes, Thierry yes. Lavac is an amazing designer, one of the best in terms of uh, cameras, twisty, twitchy feeling. When you say it needs to be, uh, it's down to the, the wire, the feeling, the touchy feeling, make it feel good. He is the, like, I was, simple thing, I was a Mr. Feel Good, yes, but Thierry is a master Mr. Feelgood, and I think it would make for a really interesting show because he loves oh, to talk, absolutely. and it would be enjoyable for everybody, yes, for sure. 
Thank you so much, Nick. That is a fantastic nomination. I can't wait to tell him that he's been nominated. He's going to be super nervous and standoffish. Oh, yeah. He's going to fight it. He's going to freak out. But we're going to make it happen. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. That's a great nomination, bro. My pleasure. All right, man. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup, mon frère. Thank you for the opportunity, John. Thank you. It was amazing. We will be back for sure. I can't wait to bring you back once Gotham Knights is out in the wild, probably sure. even before then. Nice. Do you have any closing words for the listeners out there? Hey, thanks for everybody for hanging in there and making sure that the world stays together. We're not dead yet. Hang in there. Play games and love your loved ones the most. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's big, man. Call your moms, your parents. Call, call your moms. Be happy. And don't let these times time. ruin your yeah exactly ruin you because it's gonna get better. We we almost there, bro. Vaccines are rolling out. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, I summer. So. We may have a fun summer. Who knows? Maybe fall. Summer is always fun in Montreal when you get that many snow. Sun is always good, no matter what. Yeah, get some sun. Get that vitamin D in your life for sure. Nick, yeah. let's get out of here, brother. Till next time, my friend. Love you. Stay safe. What am I looking at, John? What am I looking at? <laughs> Just at the end. So this Fucking you. amazing. All right. All right. We'll, go, we'll get a little bonus action in there. because talk Next time about, when I'm back, we'll discuss about it. What we'll are we looking at, John? What are we looking at? Our first time watching King's Glaive yeah. at the crib on my projector. Oh, my God. Where it was it was very hazy in the air too. <laughs> very hazy. <laughs> That's the word. It was fantasy on screen. All right, brother. To be continued. Take care, man. Have a good one. This right here is the exact reason this show exists. It's for these conversations on our craft and the careful analysis that goes into designing what players will experience in this console generation, the one before, and the one in the future. It's unmistakable the love that Nick has for combat design. And I can't wait to get my hands on Gotham Knights to see where they're taking that second-to-second gameplay. As a designer, I find there's a delicate balance between knowing the competitive landscape, analyzing what's been done before, so that you can know what you can and should or shouldn't do going forward, as well as always looking to bring something fresh into players' hands. That may or may not be something they were anticipating or even know they wanted, but potentially creating an entirely new wave or refining what's already there. If I can line them up in no particular order, I easily got lost for days in playing Batman Arkham, Shadow of Mordor and War, almost all the Platinum games like Vanquish and Bayonetta. I really dug Jedi Fallen Order and The Last God of War. I'll admit I get owned in Souls and Bloodborne, but a lot of homies still talk me into checking out Sekiro, so that's on my queue maybe one day. Which games, combat designs do you enjoy? We could definitely go into this on several more episodes, and I intend to in the future. Maybe even I'll invite several other combat designers and maybe do like a round table. Let me know what you think about that. On the next episode of Out of Play Area, dropping Monday, August the 16th on all podcast platforms from Spotify, Audible, Apple iTunes, and YouTube, and more, we sit down with Sylvain Dubrovsky, a game designer at Oculus here in Seattle, and we learned how he broke into the industry as a programmer and then made the jump over into design and his motivations for that. He's a former fellow electronic artist from Popcat Seattle, 
who's worked at 3DO, at Harmonics on Rock Band, the mythical layer at Factor 5, where he's now found his home in VR. I've never worked with him before and was extremely enlightened by our conversation. You won't want to miss that one, so make sure you follow the podcast so you don't miss out when it drops. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this informative, I ask you to pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer pushes Out of Play Area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ren, bring them home, fam. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cabin crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. Something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real Welcome to the Out of Play Area Let's go.